O Lord of hosts, we praise you because great is your holy name among the nations. To you alone belongs all honor, praise, and glory. Oh God, I thank you that you are a God, the God of angel armies, and I pray, God, that um, you would put your hedge of protection around those who are still driving here today. And I pray, God, that, um, that they would have calm spirits and, and just uh, relax and get here whenever they get here. Father, I pray right now that you would clear our hearts and minds of all distractions, that you would endow our hearts with your wisdom, give understanding to our minds, and that you would help us by your Holy Spirit to grasp the kind of worship that you alone deserve. And Father, as we walk through this passage, I pray that you would pierce our hearts with life-giving, life-changing conviction, that you would tune our hearts to sing your grace, Fill our mouths with loudest praise. And Father, I ask that you would use me, your humble servant, to the praise of your glory. All this I pray in the mighty and majestic name of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. Amen. Let there be light. (laughs) Okay. Have you ever felt glorious? Plunging into a cool river on a blistering hot day, you might say, oh, that feels glorious. When a famous actor dies, we might say, he had a long and glorious career. Uh, When a vacation goes exactly as planned, we might say, it was a glorious six days. But have you personally felt glorious? In the Bible, God alone is truly and fully glorious. He is the source of all glory. The glory seen in a sunset or a mountaintop or the starry skies is a declaration of God's glory. Even more stunning, God created mankind to be vessels of his glory. Genesis 1, 26 through 27 tells us that God created man, male and female, in his own image, which is glorious, filled with infinite, dazzling, spectacular glory. But God's glory in us was extinguished in Adam's fall into sin. We went from glorious to inglorious. The word inglorious means causing shame or a loss of honor without courage or glory. Sin marred God's glory in us. It snuffed out its shine. A.W. Tozer explained, saying, God made us to worship. That is why we were created, that we might worship the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth. We sinned, though, and lost the glory and fell, and the light went out in our hearts, and we stopped worshiping God, and our affections were set on things below. The very moment we lost God's glory in the fall, God set his plan of redemption in motion. We learned about this as we studied the doctrine of covenants last week. He did this so that our sin would no longer separate us from him. He did this to restore our glory, not for our sake, but for his. 
A.W. Tozer continues saying, In Christ, God raises us up until we shall be like him. He redeems us that we might worship again, that we might feel in our hearts and express in our own way that humbling but nevertheless delightful sense of admiring awe and astonished wonder and overwhelming love in the presence of that ancient mystery. That unspeakable majesty, that ancient of days. Inglorious sinners are restored to glorious sons to worship God as he commands. The word inglorious, though, it describes God's priest in Malachi chapter 1, verses 6 through 14. Their actions dishonored God, despised his very name and desecrated the people's worship of the one true and holy God. Through his prophet Malachi, God rebukes his people, saying that his name must be great. In fact, it will be great among the nations. This teaches us that God's people are commanded to make his name great. That's what we'll learn in our two divisions this morning, profaning God's name, and proclaiming God's name. So our first division is profaning God's name, Malachi chapter 1, verses 6 through 9. Now, it's been a few lessons since we were in the book of Malachi, but if you recall, in chapter 1, verses 1 through 5, God declared his love for his covenant people, saying, I have loved you. And they respond by saying, give us proof, prove it. God gave them proof in the example of Jacob and Esau, which proved that his love is a sovereign, unconditional, electing, forgiving love. This incomprehensibly great love was not being reciprocated. This is further evidenced in verses 6 and 7. It says, A son honors his father and a servant his master. If then I am a father, where is my honor? And if I am a master, where is my fear, says the Lord of hosts, to you, O priest, who despise my name? The Lord of hosts addresses his priest in these verses. The Lord of hosts is a name for God used some 260 times in the Old Testament. And it is used six times in these few verses in Malachi. The capitalized word Lord refers to Yahweh, the self-existent, redemptive God. The word host is a Hebrew word for armies, referring to the angelic armies of heaven. This name reveals God is the all-powerful ruler over the angel armies as well as the entire universe. All power and all authority are his The matchless sovereign, king of kings and lord of lords, is the king of glory who will one day defeat all his enemies. And if we look at Revelation chapter 19, verses 11 through 20, it reveals that the Lord of hosts is none other than Jesus Christ. God the Father has entrusted him with all things and given him all authority in heaven and on earth. He reigns now and forever. 
the eternally reigning Lord of hosts, is the same God who set the nation of Israel apart as his holy nation and the tribe of Levi as his priest. He has the right, the power, and the authority to ask, where is my honor? Where is my fear, O priest who despise my name? The entire book of Leviticus is God outlining the very detailed duties of his priesthood. God called the priest to instruct the people in his law and to guard the truth of his word. They were entrusted with honoring the Lord by leading the people in God-ordained worship. They were to teach the people to fear the Lord, believing and trusting in God as their Lord and Master with all their heart, soul, mind, and strength. Such honor and trust or fear rightfully belongs to the Lord of hosts. But these priests, his priests, despised his name. Commentator Peter Adams says, To despise God's name is to despise who God is. To despise the self-revelation of God, the character of God. And to despise God's name is to also despise the presence of God. Since God makes his name dwell in the temple. These were God's covenant people. He longed to dwell with them. He promised that he would be their God and they would be their people. They would be his people. By the system of ritual sacrifice, God could dwell among them in the tabernacle and then later in the temple. As God's people, they were entrusted with the high privilege of making much of his name. Instead, The priest of Malachi's day made very little of it. Incredibly, they demeaned it, despised it. This was blasphemy, an offense punishable by death. Yet when God indicted them for their failure, they respond arrogantly. Look again at verses 6 and 7. The phrase, but you say, appears twice. But you say, How have we despised your name? But you say, how have we polluted you? The Lord of hosts responds. And he says, they have despised my name by offering polluted food upon my altar. They have polluted me by saying that the Lord's table may be despised. God's specified offerings or sacrifices painted a picture of the holiness and sinlessness of his promised Messiah, Jesus. God commanded his people to give their best to him by giving unblemished animals for the sacrifice because it was a foreshadowing of a time when God would give his best, his one and only beloved son, the spotless, perfect lamb of God, as a sacrifice for our sin. Instead, the priest had significantly lowered God's standard of perfection. They excused and approved the people's substandard sacrifices. They allowed what was polluted 
flawed, blemished, second-rate on God's holy, holy, holy altar. One author likened their sacrifices to offering God roadkill. It's pretty much what they were doing. Their actions directly insulted, belittled, and demeaned God. Their actions said that the Lord's table could be despised. This was proof that they despised his name. In polluting his altar, they polluted him. The Lord God Almighty. God rightly calls their actions evil. Look at verse 8. When you offer blind animals in sacrifice, is that not evil? And when you offer those that are lame or sick, is that not evil? Then he says, present that to your governor. Will he accept you or show you favor, says the Lord of hosts. God gives the priest an example to underscore his indictment. Would they give such a gift to their governor? This was the ruler of Persia. Would he be pleased with a blind, lame, or sick animal as a gift? Would they even dare to present it to him? If they did, would he show, him fav- would he show them favor? Well, quite the opposite would happen. Persian kings were famously capricious and erratic with even the best of gifts. If one of their subjects offered a gift that the people were giving to God, they would be struck dead. God's point is that even an earthly ruler would be insulted and demeaned by such sacrifices. How much more the king of kings, the great lord of hosts, In verse 9, Malachi begs the priest to rise to their position, to recognize their responsibility, and throw themselves on the grace of God. He says, and now entreat the favor of God that he may be gracious to us. With such a gift from your hand, will he show favor to any of you, says the Lord of hosts. If these people did not value God enough, To seek his favor. Why did they even continue to make sacrifices? Their worthless sacrifices gained no favor from God. What was the point? Peter Adam again says, how typical of priests and people at that time that they did not have the nerve to stop offering sacrifices but offered second-rate sacrifices, going through the motions of serving God when their hearts, lips, and lives were far away from God. Second-rate sacrifices do not please God. They do not make his name great. They profane it. This applies directly to believers today. Because of Christ's sacrifice, on the cross as the perfect lamb of God. Our sins have been removed from us as far as the east is from the west. However, he still commands our first-rate sacrifices 
Believers are called to worship God as living sacrifices. Romans chapter 12, verses 1 through 2, Paul writes, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. God's people make his name great by presenting themselves as living sacrifices. They commit to live sacrificially, giving God their best at all times and in all circumstances according to his good, acceptable, and perfect will. Our first truth is that God's people make his name great through sacrificial living. How do you give God your best each day? What do you sacrifice Or could you sacrifice to live in a way that makes his name great? And which of your habitual sins despise or profane his name instead? We fail to give God our best. When we give him what is left over, our leftover time or our leftover resources, We fail to show God honor and fear when we give him what cost us nothing. And we fail to make God's name great when we continue in the habitual sin of our habitual sin instead of repenting of it. Sacrificial living requires us to live intentionally, doing what is costly to us. That makes us give up something so that we can offer to God the obedience and the service he deserves. Hebrews chapter 13 lists more sacrifices that are pleasing to the Lord. And because of Christ's once for all sacrifice on the cross, not one bloody animal is required. Sacrificial living makes God's name great by doing whatever it takes to show one another brotherly love, to show hospitality to strangers and remember those who are in prison or those who are mistreated. Sacrificial living means doing whatever it takes to honor all marriages, keep our lives free from uh, immorality and free from the love of money. Sacrificial living means that we willingly suffer with and for Jesus Christ and continually offer up A sacrifice of praise that acknowledges God's holy name. And sacrificial living means that we obey our God-given leaders, submitting to them with joy. Now those are just a few ways that God's people make his name great through sacrificial living. To use a phrase from the book of Ephesians, it's how we live to the praise of God's glory. Instead of profaning God's name, We actively pursue proclaiming God's name. That's our second division, proclaiming God's name, verses 10 through 14. In verse 10, the Lord of hosts says, Oh, that there were one among you who would shut 
the doors, that you might not kindle fire on my altar in vain. I have no pleasure in you, and I will not accept an offering from your hand. This is a scandalous statement. The priesthood existed for service in the temple. But God says he would rather board up the temple windows and nail the door shut than receive polluted offerings on his altar. The sacrifices of his people, meant to be a pleasing aroma to the Lord and a path to enjoying his presence, gave God no pleasure. He rejected their offerings. More than that, he rejected their very presence. The God who dwelt among his people no longer wanted them around. This was tantamount to reversing his covenant. In essence, he is saying, I will not be your God and you will not be my people. God required his people to give, them, give him their best or nothing at all. Worshiping him must make his name great or cease. Does that convict your heart like it does mine? Are you giving God your best every day? What about on Sundays? The inglorious priest and people fail to make God's name great with their profane and polluted sacrifices. In the middle of this bad news, Malachi gives his Jewish listeners a hard and unexpected truth that is good news for you and me. The Lord of hosts says that he will make his name great, but not through chosen Israel. He will make his name great among the nations. The Lord of hosts, you see, is not at the mercy of his faithless people. He has all power at his disposal to make his name great. Verse 11 makes that clear. It says, from the rising of the sun to its setting, my name will be great among the nations. And in every place, incense will be offered to my name and pure offering. For my name will be great among the nations, says the Lord of hosts. Three times, Malachi uses two small words, will be. This points to the future. God's people and priests were unwilling to worship God appropriately. They were unwilling to obey his command to make his name great. But one day, the nations would willingly place their faith in Jesus Christ and proclaim the glory and the greatness of God's holy name. The word nations points to the inclusion of the Gentiles in the people of God. Now, this should not have surprised the Israelites. God had called Israel to be a kingdom of priests, a light to the nations. When God established his unconditional covenant with Abraham, he said that through Israel, all nations would be blessed. But to the shame of God's chosen Israel, God would raise up another people to praise him. God commands his people to make his name great. And those who are truly his people will do so. You see, we have to understand that not every Israelite was one of God's inheritance. 
his elect people. As a nation, Israel was chosen. But every individual Israelite had to receive the Lord by faith, looking forward to the saving work of God's promised Messiah. In the same way, every individual today must receive the Lord by faith. But we look back to the saving work of God's promised Messiah. God has his inheritance, his elect people. Those people are commanded to make his name great. Those people will worship him in spirit and in truth. They will ascribe to him the worth of which he is worthy. The word worship comes from an old English word that means worthship. It means to proclaim or give worth to something that you consider precious and supremely valuable. God's people proclaim his name because they know he is exceedingly precious and supremely valuable. Walter Kaiser says that impure, reluctant service will be exceeded by the pure, acceptable worship that comes up to God from the peoples all over the earth. How will they succeed where Israel had failed? Through Christ alone. Verse 11 telescopes out beyond Malachi's day to a day when incense and pure offerings will be offered in every place, not just the temple. This points to Messiah. Because the great high priest, Jesus Christ, has come, the priesthood's no longer needed. Because he is the temple of God, the temple is no longer needed. And because he is the ultimate and perfect sacrifice, sacrifices are no longer needed. The phrase from the rising of the sun to its setting telescopes us even further into the future when the triumph of the Lord of hosts is final. One day, God will judge the whole world and restore it to its intended glory. This includes the glory in his people. After this flash of future glory, God returns to address his priest about sacrifices on his altar. What dread should have filled these priests when God Almighty pointed his holy finger at them and said, but you, look at verses 12 through 13, but you profane my name when you say that the Lord's table is polluted and its fruit, that is its food, may be despised. But you say, what a weariness this is. And you snort at it, says the Lord of hosts. You bring what has been taken by violence or is lame or sick, and this you bring as your offering? Shall I accept that from your hands, says the Lord? Weariness. Snort-inducing weariness at the holy name of the Lord God Almighty. That's the bottom line. God's priest, the ones entrusting with making sure God was worshipped properly, they were just weary of it all. Their sacrifices that they had to make were a nuisance, an annoyance to them. So they were indifferent about the sacrifices that God required. Careless, lackadaisical about what they were willing to accept on God's behalf. As 
if they had a choice. The Lord of hosts accuses them of profaning his very name by saying the Lord's table is polluted, that its food may be despised. You see, worthless sacrifices made the Lord's table worthless. The priest knowingly and willingly accepted the sacrifices that defiled God's altar. They were so wearied by it all. Their work was no longer a joy. It was a burdensome and boring drudgery. But their main problem was not the work. It was their attitude toward God. They had a low view of God. They no longer esteemed him. They no longer lived to glorify him. They no longer knew him and his gloriously holy character. You and I, we cannot truly know God's holy character and choose to profane his name. The better that we know God's character, the deeper our relationship with him grows. And the deeper our relationship with him grows, the more loudly we will proclaim his name. We will rejoice in obeying his command to make his name great. In the last verse of Malachi chapter 1, the Lord of hosts answers his own question posed in verse 13. That question was, shall I accept that? Meaning the sacrifices that you bring by violence or lame uh, or lame or sick offerings. Shall I accept that from your hand? His answer is a resounding no. Instead of receiving his favor or blessing, those people would be cursed. The sin of the priest has multiplied and infected the people. Verse 14, cursed be the cheat who has a male in his flock and bows it and yet sacrifices to the Lord what is blemished. God's curse expanded to all who dared to offer such polluted offerings. Their sacrifices weren't sacrifices at all. They cost them nothing. This revealed their heart attitude toward God. Rather than worship him, they despised him. The Lord of hosts has the final word in this chapter. He declares, for I am a great king and my name will be feared among the nations. Indeed, God is the king of kings, the eternally enthroned, magnificently majestic king. He alone is worthy of our sacrificial worship, a worship that makes his name great. Our second truth is that God's people make his name great through sacrificial worship. How does your worship make much of God's name? The attitude of the priest and of, of the Israelite people was lacking in honor and fear that was due God's holy name. Do you lack the same honor and fear in what ways does your daily worship build up the local church what is your attitude when you enter the sanctuary on Sunday morning is it one of reverence and awe what do you need to sacrifice to ensure that your worship is proper 
orderly, and filled with reverence and awe for the holiness of God. The worship God rightly deserves is sacrificial. One author describes this kind of worship saying, in worship, the abilities of the people should fade from view as we are blinded by the brilliance of God's glorious radiance. Worship is not a time for admiring the abilities of people. It is our opportunity to admire our God. When God's people meet in his presence, one goal should govern all that we do. We are to extol his unsurpassed glories. True sacrificial worship requires us to put to death all traces of our inglorious sin. To sacrifice everything so that we might behold the glory of God. As we behold his glory, we are filled with his glory. We absorb what we behold. And when we fix our eyes on him in worshipful adoration, we cannot help but proclaim the greatness of his holy name. You see, God's people, they make his name great through sacrificial worship. How glorious are you feeling about now? Is the glory you feel of your own making? Or is it God's glory in you? God gives his people his glory. And then he commands them to go and make his name great. John Piper writes that man was created from the beginning in God's image that he might image forth God's glory. He was to multiply and fill the earth so that the knowledge of the glory of God would cover the sea. Instead of multiplying sin, you and I were created to multiply glory. This was the heart of King David's dying prayer. In Psalm 79, he prays, Blessed be the glorious name of God forever. May the whole earth be filled with his glory. Amen and amen. Of this verse, Charles Spurgeon writes, How far-reaching was the psalmist's dying intercession. How comprehensive, how sublime. Let the whole earth be filled with God's glory. Is that your prayer? Turn your eyes to Calvary. Behold the Lord of life nailed to a cross with the thorn crown about his brow with bleeding head and hands and feet. What? Can you look upon this miracle of miracles, the death of the Son of God, without feeling within your bosom a marvelous adoration that language can never express? And when you feel the blood applied to your conscience and know that he has blotted out your sin, start from your knees and cry, let the whole earth be filled with his glory. Amen and amen. Can you bow before the crucified in loving homage and not wish to see your monarch master of the world? Oh, Christian, what are you willing to sacrifice to make God's name great? Please pray with me. Oh, sovereign Lord, holy God.
We, who were once inglorious sinners, have been redeemed by the tremendously great, extravagant, and perfect sacrifice of Jesus Christ. You now count us as your inheritance, a people filled with your dazzling glory. You command us to make your name great among the nations. This requires sacrificial living and sacrificial worship, a laying down of our lives, our wants, our needs, our rights. Oh God, we cannot do this in our own strength. Grant us the power of your Holy Spirit to continually proclaim the greatness of your name. For this we humbly pray in the precious name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.